Hello and welcome to Army of Crime, your favorite crossover podcast where we cover comic books and movies with equal degrees of greatness. I am your co-host, Matt. This is my other co-host, Dustin. It's all co-hosts here because we're like an anarchist collective or something. Uh, I don't believe that we ever discussed that, but, you know, I'm open to it. Okay. Yeah, we do not have a state stated political system yet. I guess uh, it is a, a non-hierarchical, though. Right. Speaking of political systems, I believe we both watched a movie in which a political system was established by women in bodies of water handing out weapons. Correct. Which, as Monty Python would point out, is not a recipe for a stable system of governance. It didn't really seem to be in the movie we watched either, to be honest. Our two topics this episode are Hellboy in Hell, written and drawn by the fabulous and munificent Mike McNola, and the movie Excalibur, directed by John Borman. That's true, and both of these things involve someone drawing the sword out of the stone. Right, they actually have a strong, uh, a weird connection with Arthurian myth, although the Arthurian touch in Hellboy in Hell is pretty light. Do you want to talk about, I guess we could talk about Excalibur first. Excalibur is, of course, about King Arthur. King Arthur is probably one of the most adapted works of fiction slash literature slash folktale slash mythology ever. I think that's probably fair to say. There is probably a King Arthur movie. I mean, pretty much every year some version of King Arthur comes out. I think there was just one that came out recently where they're all like kids or something. Um there was one by Guy Ritchie where they're like gangsters. Suffice it to say, there's a lot of King Arthur material in the world. Um, I think I've seen somewhere, or maybe I imagine this, but the most adapted figure outside of an actual like religious founder, basically outside of Jesus. I mean, he's in all kinds of stuff. If you think of the shelf life of King Arthur, it's pretty insane. Um, and yeah, it shows up in Hellboy. So it's a pretty long shelf life just for the concept, for the myth as a whole. Um, Excalibur, as I mentioned, is a film directed by John Borman. It hews pretty close in some ways to what you might call like a classic take on the myth. So you have Arthur, you have Uther Pendragon, um, you have the sword Excalibur, you have Guinevere Lancelot, you have the Grail Quest. What did you think about, I guess we could talk about some of the Arthurian aspects of it. I don't know, I like reading and researching different kinds of Arthurian takes. As a film, I guess, what would you say about the movie Excalibur? One thing I thought that was interesting, just to put this out as a piece of trivia, but apparently uh, John Borman, who is someone who throughout his career has always been very interested in myth and in the way that people uh, live with myths and in the way myths are used, he, I think his best... Uh, result of this kind of fascination is the movie Zardos, which we, I think we actually briefly talked about on a previous podcast episode. But apparently he wanted to make a Lord of the Rings movie and he couldn't get the rights to it. And Excalibur was the uh, was was the one that he went to after that. You yeah, know, it's interesting because this definitely has a high fantasy vibe to it. It, it is very much like high fantasy. I have pretty mixed feelings about the movie Excalibur because there are a lot of things about it that are really awesome and then some of it just like doesn't really work like like the first 20 minutes or so with Uther Pendragon who's King Arthur's father 
I think are like really great. Just it's like this really primal sort of like mythic story that not only you know it's not like a clean myth because there is it's all like mud and blood and like this like primal lust and rape and it's like extremely violent and i as sort of like a gritty reboot of king arthur if you want to call it that i found that first part to be like really compelling but then when it switches to the actual king arthur story i feel like it's less interesting part of the problem is that the guy who plays King Arthur is a really bad actor. And I think a lot of the acting in general is kind of sketchy. And then from there, it just kind of like goes through various different like King Arthur stories. And there isn't really, it doesn't really feel like there's a dramatic through line through the whole thing. So as like a piece of drama, I find my, my interest kind of flagging over the two and a half hour runtime. It's all these like little vignettes where, he, where he's adapting these like different Arthurian legends, but as like an entire film, I feel like it doesn't hold up that well. It doesn't hold together that well, but you know, all that being said, like the first 20 minutes I think are great. And there are also lots of really wonderful, like visual touches, like the part right before they found the round table, you have this like sort of battle scene with all these guys with torches in the night and, you know, John Borman has often been a really wonderful visual stylist. And I think there's a lot of like really great visuals in this film and just a lot of really striking images that kind of get at this like perfect gritty myth kind of thing, which sounds like kind of a cliche now. And maybe it was a cliche then too, but I think, you know, the instinct, the visual instinct is there, but I just feel like there's kind of a lack of drama. Yeah, there's a couple different angles I want to take on that. I agree with you that there's a lot of great visuals, some of which would include, for example, Lancelot fighting with himself is very cool. Um, And he gets like stabbed through the side and it's like a self-inflicted, almost like a spiritual wound. Um, I think that's a great sequence. The sequence towards the end where Arthur is healed and they're riding through the cherry blossoms and you have like this tracking shot that must have been from um, a truck riding directly in front of where his horse was because you have Arthur in the foreground uh, riding his horse and everybody else in the background like following behind him as like these cherry blossoms are coming down. That's a great sequence. Um, Visually, Camelot is cool. It's like this fortress made out of purely geometric angles, so it looks very artificial and alien. And I think the whole visual tone of the movie, it's an interesting contrast because there's a lot of earth tones. Almost the entire thing takes place outside. I don't think there's a city anywhere in the movie. It's almost all outside in nature, and there's a lot of riding around. So there's a lot of earth tones um, like greens and and brown, and it contrasts with the knights and their armor. Um, they're basically in plate armor the entire movie, which of course makes no sense historically or realistically or whatever, but it's high fantasy. They're basically wearing plate armor the entire movie, and they're always shining. There must have just been guys whose jobs were to follow the knights around with lights and shine it on them at all times because they're always just like glowing. They're like these human stars walking through the wilderness, all of which contributes to the high fantasy tone of it, the high fantasy uh, vibe that it's creating this whole world. I was going to say Lancelot, especially made me wonder how they like shot him with a camera considering how like reflective his armor is. But, and of course that's Lancelot. That's kind of like his deal is he's the, the Ur knight. 
and your point about the city, there's a kind of a really interesting uh, little thing he does towards the beginning where after Uther puts the sword in the stone, and then you see this little city that springs up around it. And then as you go into the city, you can see a stage where I believe there are like actors like staging a version of the Uther Pendragon story. As I believe you only get a quick glance at it. Yeah. So what 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 did you think of the uh, my complaints about the uh, like the acting and the actual like I don't know if plot is the right word but it just feels like uh, a series of loosely connected King Arthur short films. Right. So I was thinking while watching this that he has a pretty good job actually of summarizing and sort of condensing a lot of the myths and I think this is a problem that goes all the way back to the source material. Um, he credits La Morte de Artur as the as the source for this, which was, of course, written in the 1400s. And it is a lot of disconnected material. The King Arthur myth on its own is like sprawling, right? And he, I think they do a pretty good job of trying to condense it down. I think what you're talking about is there. It's really a problem with, I think, the source material, ultimately. They cut out a lot of characters from the Arthurian saga. And, you know, King Arthur requires... The story of King Arthur has a lot of time jumps in it, right? Because Mordred is part of it. And Mordred is the ultimate... Is meant to be the ultimate villain. And he's King Arthur's son. Which means you have to have a big enough time jump in the storyline for Mordred to grow up. Mordred is also one of uh, Hellboy's great ancestors. But we'll get to that in the next section. Yes, the connection. And I thought Mordred actually had a great character design. He looks like a decadent Roman emperor. He um, made me think of like Nero or Caligula or something. So that's actually another great character design. And it's a nice contrast on Mordred's almost decadent Roman golden armor with the knights and their silver plate armor. That's an aside. But yeah, the Arthurian myth is so vast that you end up with a lot of vignettes, I think just by the nature of it, because they have a grail quest in here. And in the Grail quest, you basically lose Arthur as a character. And the only way to go around that would be to really just cut out the Grail quest completely, which you could certainly do. It's usually considered a bit pretty large part of the Arthurian saga. I think that's just them wrestling with the source material. So I guess I don't really disagree. But I think if you're trying to adapt the entirety of King Arthur, you know, nowadays, everybody, they break everything down into separate movies, right? And I don't think that was really as much of an accepted practice maybe in 1981 when this came out. Um, because certainly now, if you were to say, oh, I want to make a high fantasy Arthurian saga, plausibly you would break it down into like two or three different movies. Well, yes, because I think what we're getting at here is that this is not a story, but many stories. And basically the filmmakers here, you know, selected several stories to put into to tell their film, you know, to tell the story of the film Excalibur. And I guess my problem is that I just don't feel like that that works that well as like a piece of drama. And what did you think? Am I crazy? Or was the guy who played King Arthur uh, like really bad? Like I tried to find some information online about if they had somebody like dub him after the fact, because his voice just sounds like really odd and it, the dubbing seems like really off. And I couldn't find anything about um, the dubbing, but he it's, it's kind of a problem when the lead actor in your film uh, is like stinking up the place. Yeah. Yeah. They should have had Patrick Stewart do more. It was fun to see. I had seen this film before, but I didn't realize that Patrick Stewart is in it and Liam Neeson is in it. And yeah. Gabriel Byrne is in it. 
Helen Mirren is in it. I also thought it was interesting that apparently they originally wanted Max Foncito to play Merlin because the guy they cast looks exactly like Max Foncito. Max Foncito as Merlin would work. I would be definitely on board with that. What did you think of the their decision to occasionally use Merlin for a wacky slapstick comic relief? I could take or leave that, I guess. Merlin is sort of an odd character, right? Because I think drama fiction as a whole, it's hard to do magic, right? Because if you have a character whose whole shtick is that they can just make anything happen, it, it's sort of a, it can be kind of a black hole for plot. So Merlin kind of bounces around the story, and then, of course, he gets trapped in a cave, which is what happens to him in a lot of the Arthurian myth. I feel like the strong point—well, it's interesting. You say there's no through line in this movie. I mean, the title is Excalibur. The through line is literally the sword, because we start with Uther getting the sword, and then we sort of track the sword through all of these things until the sword gets given back to the lady in the lake. So I would say the through line is literally the sword, and maybe that's not— a satisfying enough hook to hang a whole movie on. I mean, I don't disagree with what you're saying. I think that's kind of how the Arthurian saga is. It's sort of a sprawling epic that meanders in a lot of different directions. And I think they do a, they do, I think they do an admirable job of trying to condense it down into a manageable form. I have this image of trying to like hammer something into the shape of a film and it's a difficult task. Uh, I wouldn't want to be handed La Morte d'Arthur and say to adapt it into a two hour and 20 minute movie. I don't know what you would do to do that successfully. I think it, I think it's a, uh, a movie that's definitely worth watching if you're into, because I, I like reading about um, different takes on Arthur. I really love the book, The Once and Future King, which all inspired the Disney animated Sword in the Stone, right? A take on Arthur. So, you know, it's interesting that you, so you approach this as someone who's into King Arthur. I kind of approached it as a John Borman fan. And I, like I said, I feel like he did, like a kind of epic myth story better than other films like Zardos, which I think Zardos, by the nature of it being an original story, you know, he's not bound to the source material as much, which I felt like was part of the problem here. But that being said, did you, as someone who's into King Arthur, how do you feel like this stacks up to other adaptations that you've seen either on film or otherwise? I think it stacks up pretty well. Like I said, it, it leans a lot into the high fantasy angle, right? The fact that they're all wearing plate armor all the time, which historically, I mean, if you want to really nerd out, you'd point out that um, King Arthur, the Arthur historical figure would have been dated to within 100 to 150 years of the fall of Western Roman Empire, when which plate armor did not exist. So it, it's deeply anachronistic, which goes into the high fantasy part, right? It's just straight fantasy. You're really big into this plate armor. I, I noticed the plate armor. I thought about it a lot while watching. They literally always are wearing plate armor. Like, they are, yeah. It is it is kind of, I, while watching it, I thought like, man, that would be really awkward to have to wear plate armor all the time. But it's interesting because like at the beginning, you know, Uther, the, like the, the, the designs of the characters at the beginning of their armor reminded me of like the orcs and like Lord of the Rings. Like their armor gives their characters sort of like a monstrous visage, like pre-round table. Right, and then at the end, Mordred's army also has this black plate armor. They look like post-apocalyptic raiders or something. Here's a million-dollar question for you. Why does everyone love King Arthur so much? Dustin, what's your take? I have no idea. Personally, as a, I've never been found at all that fascinating, but I wonder, um, since uh, King Arthur is the sort of the founding myth of Britain, 
right? So as a sense, considering that the enormous influence that the United Kingdom and British culture has had on the world, including our country and all of the Anglophiles that exist in the world, it kind of makes sense that the founding myth of the British Isles would have a large hold like uh, throughout history. But I don't know if I have any great idea beyond that. What, what do you think? Well, I would say the fact that it's an interesting mixture of both heroism and tragedy because the characters in it are generally very heroic, but they're ultimately all trapped and doomed by things that are largely beyond their control. And usually, you know, in tragedy, I guess traditionally in tragedy, and I'm not like a genius or anything, but I feel like usually characters are doomed by their own faults. And in in Arthur's story, a lot, they are doomed by their faults to some degree, but a lot of it's stuff beyond their control or even stuff that are like positives. Like um, the whole story between like Arthur and Lancelot and Guinevere, usually there's an angle that's, and they don't do this a whole lot in the movie, but the fact that Arthur is too merciful and if he didn't love Guinevere, he would just have them both exiled or killed or something, uh, which would be within his power as king, especially during that time period. But he doesn't really know what to do with the fact that his best friend is in love with his wife. And it sort of traps him in this moral conundrum, uh, made all the more literal by the fact that he's literally the king and can do whatever he wants. And there's that element of tragedy, too, of the fact that the whole storyline comes from the thing at the beginning. Uh, and this they do capture in the movie pretty well. The fact that Uther impregnates... Egret? Yes. Thank you. I mean, though, he, he, he rapes her. In mo he rapes her with Merlin's help, which sets in plot... It sets in motion the whole plot, because then Morgan wants revenge on them for the fact that Merlin and Uther raped her mother, and she gets revenge on Merlin, but she also takes revenge on Arthur, which, of course, it's not really his fault at all, right? Uh, so she raises Mordred to take revenge on Arthur, and then I feel bad for Mordred, too, because he's really just thrown into this um, as a child and raised to hate his own father. And it's all tragedy, and it's all stemming from this thing that Merlin and Uther did that is beyond the control of all the characters Except, of course, Merlin. It's Merlin's fault. Well, it's really Uther's fault. Well, it's, it's Uther's fault, too. But Uther's dead, so we can't punish him anymore. Um, and Merlin gets his comeuppance, I suppose. I think that's part of it. I think there's a lot happening in the Arthurian saga that's interesting. It's like a Koch snowflake, which is the thing that has a defined boundary but an infinite interior. Because you can almost spin it out into all kinds of angles and all kinds of things. But yes, as a movie, I'm not going to dispute what you said. Visually, though, it is really cool. I mean, as a movie, that's what it is. And the music is good, too. It's almost too much. Like, if you were to just play me a clip from this, I feel like I would think it was dated or something. But when you're watching the movie, it works. Did you know that this is Zack Snyder's favorite movie? I did not know that, and that's very interesting. Do you want to have any uh, final word on Excalibur? John Borman's Excalibur? I thought it was a good movie. I thought it's worth watching. Um, it's you say it's that. a high fan. I feel like you say that about all the movies we watch. Do I not trash any of the movies? Am I too nice? I mean, is it, does it stand alone as like a great film? Would you just recommend it to, you know, Eddie Punch Clock on the street? I would recommend it if you like fantasy, if you like epic, if you like swords and sorcery or medieval stuff. I maybe would not recommend it to just random uh, Joe Sixpack off the street corner. Okay.
Well, sorry, continue on with what you were saying before I rudely interrupted you. No, I think that pretty much sums it up. All right. If you like Arthur, if you like Arthur stuff, I mean, it's as close to a classic take on the story, but with a modern sensibility. I mean, that's basically the whole thing in a nutshell. Speaking of, and you mentioned this character several times, uh, but Mordred had children, and eventually he, uh, one of his descendants was a witch named Sarah Hughes, who was captured by a demon in hell, and then gave birth to a son named Unang Unrama, who was then transported to Earth and named Hellboy. Accurate. Extremely accurate. And that brings us to our other comic, or our other uh, thing that we were going to talk about, which is Mike Mignola's 10-part comic book series called Hellboy in Hell. Just to give it, there's an introduction at the beginning, which I will read. It sort of sums up the story up to that point very well in case, because you can, you can uh, I would say, probably enjoy this as a largely standalone story which is, I think, kind of what it's meant to be. But at the beginning of Hellboy in Hell, it says the following. Hellboy, a brief history. On December 23, 1944, Hellboy appeared in a fireball in the ruins of a church near East Bromwich, England. In 1952, he was granted honorary human status by a special act of the United Nations and began working as a field agent for the Bureau for Paranormal Research and Defense. He quit the BPRD in 2001 and traveled to Africa, where he was abducted by mermaids. After several years lost at sea, he returned to England, fought some giants, fell in love, and learned that he was a direct descendant of King Arthur, and therefore the rightful king of all Britain. Shortly thereafter, he fought a dragon and was killed. And that leads us to his journey into his birthplace of hell and everything that results from that. And... You know, in essence, what you get in this story is Mike Mignola creating a proper setting for him to just, like, draw the things that he wants to draw and sort of write the kinds of stories that he wants to write. So you have puppets and you have giant crustacean monsters and insects and lots of demons and statues and ghosts and skeletons and all that kind of stuff. And the larger story basically involves Hellboy meeting Sir Edward Grey, who's another Hellboy character who's also in Hell, and then him sort of having some uh, random adventures and having to grapple with these uh, tasks or basically what he has to do while he's in Hell. Um, There's something that he, as always, is... uh, forced to do with some kind of act of destiny before he can finally be at peace. So I don't know, there's a lot of different things that we could talk about with this comic, but what did you, what were your overall impressions of Hellboy in Hell? Well, I'm going to skip over the the art for now, because we could just say the art is great. Um, I'm going to, what I thought was interesting about it, in addition to the art, which, like I said, is great and perfect and i mean it's mike mignola doing his thing on all sorts of landscapes and different types of you know he's got that cool city well now i'm trying i'm not trying not to go into the art um the story what i thought was cool about the hell the hellboy in hell the storyline the actual plot of it is it's told in the way that i think myths are usually told which is the fact that it's kind of rambling um and it kind of takes side tours and there's like stories within a story 
but it all makes sense from a bigger picture perspective because if you're looking if you were to just give, literally give like a plot summary of sh- some of the short parts of this it would sound really insane right because it's like hellboy meets his family his brother and his sister and then they fight and then a monster eats some of them and then his sister puts the furies on him because she thinks he killed his brother that was actually eaten by the monster and he thinks it's his fault because he killed someone else but it turns out that wasn't the person that the furies were after you know and it there's like it's like a wheels turning within wheels within wheels but yeah it's but it's all very done in a very kind of fun and like maybe fun's not the right word but it's in a very fast paced you know like that comic book style and you have hellboy is of course the straight man who's just sort of being dumped into these situations over and over again. So in the end, it's like a whole myth cycle has happened. But on a surface level, it's Hellboy wandering around and he talks to some people. He tries to help some random people he meets. He makes little friends. He gets in fights with things. Yeah, it's still kind of still like is in its roots as a kind of like an action slash horror story. Because like you said, he does find himself like getting into fights with uh, with people, including his siblings and his uncle. He meets his father, who is trapped in frozen in ice, but still alive for all eternity. Right. And I think it sums up kind of what makes Hellboy such a cool character is he's this existentialist knight in the sense that not that he doesn't have a purpose, but he actually has two purposes, but he intentionally rejects them both, leaving him by his own choice without a purpose in life. Like, he doesn't want to have a purpose. He's actually offered two purposes in his meta story, and he rejects them. He he literally wants to be a, pur- a, a purposeless person, right? He wants to be free from destiny. And, you know, existentialist character is usually like a character without a stated purpose. And Hellboy is like a character who has purpose, and he has literally rejected it because he doesn't want to be beholden to other things. He just wants to be himself. Because because he is shown his throne in like in hell if if he were to take it up, um, of, which of course he's rejected many times, and in this he, you know, continues to reject to the, you know, consternation of his father. I'm sure who is being punished eternally for creating Hellboy for this project, and then Hellboy rejects the project. But Yeah, and I think the visual styles of Hell, too, is, is cool, because you have the fortress at the middle is pandemonium. You have the city around it, which looks like all these clustered little houses, almost like houses growing like fungus or something. They're, like, all jumbled on each other, and they're mostly abandoned, I guess. And then you have the forest around that. Yeah, yeah. so he kind of seamlessly combines, like, science fiction, Lovecraft, uh, Paradise Lost, which is what the city of Pandemonium is from, and also the story of the angels that fall before Satan's fall for being greedy. That's from Paradise Lost too. So it's a seamless mixture of like a lot of very different, very interesting things. It's also got Macbeth is in there and A Christmas Carol. Like he loves, and there is some actual myths to the uh, the vampire or like the Gambler of Prague is a myth from the city of Prague. And I think there's one other one that he kind of like remixes into this. So it's very much like uh, Mike Mignola, just like given free reign to do all, combine all of the things that he likes and to like mix all of these sort of like myths together. So what were some of your favorite moments, favorite stories from, from here? Well, I really like the, the Hellboy mythos overall. So like the stuff where he meets his family where he goes to pandem- pandemonium and meets Satan, or Satan's in there. 
and then like the bit at the end uh with the final there's like a final rebellion of the dukes of hell all that stuff i really like the hellboy the mythos stuff about his background um and his family members hounding him so i also like the fact that he meets his wife again which is sort of a deep cut from hellboy i haven't read all the hellboy stories so i'm sure there's a lot of stuff that i miss but i do remember that is from a previous story uh where he meets his wife and i believe at the very beginning, isn't he be attacked by a creature that's from another story? It's like people he's fought before that are now in hell that he's meeting again for some reason. Yeah. yeah, there's a guy that he fights at the beginning who is that he would have fought just previously in like a recent Hellboy story. And then, of course, he meets Edward Gray, who is a previous Hellboy character. And there's also a tie-in to another strange thing. I really like the story of the three gold whips, where there's these three guys who made a deal with a demon for these whips that when you crack the ground, like gold comes out, but then they have to give their soul to this demon after seven years. And there's this guy wandering around in hell and Hellboy meets him and they like try to help him. And then in the story, you see the statue of the magician and the snake, which is from another Mike Mignola related um, story. But um, the three gold whips, is pretty great and then i also really like the story of the uh the trials of dr hoffman uh there's a guy and then there's this like demon who's like really got it out for him for the simple reason that the the doctor did not help his friend with the golem that he created yeah i thought that was fun it's like a little trial in hell and i like how visually he always switches back and forth between what people like actually look like and their skeleton forms so there's a macabre sort of over over uh like overtone to it and it's all kind of absurd right because it's in hell but they're like trapping a ghost inside a cat yeah he has to well there's a story of this golem and when he meets the golem he says if anything i recall that he was a bit too keen on the subject of fish and then it shows him uh the golem like running amok killing people just yelling out the names of fish that's fun and then yeah hellboy gets recruited so then, like, at the end of the story, there's this giant giant demon that's coming to kill this guy. And then the doctor recruits Hellboy to help. And he says, which I felt like this is a perfect uh, summation of, like, Hellboy's, like, nonchalant attitude to this kind of stuff. Where this guy is holding a dead cat and a piece of string. And he says, I'm going to lie down in this trunk. If you could just keep him occupied while I trap his, trap his spirit inside this dead cat. And then Hellboy's just like, okay. Yeah. His response to stuff is usually just a shrug and be like, okay, yeah, sure. Yeah, sure, whatever. I love the way Mignola will, like, his stories always have these visual asides where, you know, he, like, never stays rooted in, like, the reality of the story. You know, it, it cuts to, will cut to, like, these puppets or it'll cut to, like, close-ups of stuff that people are talking about or just close-ups of, like, statues and things that are nearby. Like, it's a very, like, moody style of visual storytelling that's not just concerned with the plot but concerned with bringing you along into the whole mood and like vibe of the story you know like in the story where the guy is trying to trap a spirit in a dead cat you have hellboy standing on top of the trunk where the guy's hiding with the dead cat in the string and then this giant demon attacking him which is like this really impressive like kind of actiony splash page and then under that you have a close-up of the dead cat and the doctor saying, I'm here. And then a close-up of the dead cat's eye and it says, come to me. And then after that, there's like a, a, a black panel. So it's I, I, like I find that's kind of stuff like really effective in terms of just like 
building a mood and adding a kind of emotional resonance to these like mythic stories, which are um, on the surface, like kind of ridiculous. Yeah. And to compare it to film, because oftentimes, you know, they're both visual mediums. We make a lot of easy comparisons between them, but there's a thing you can't really do in film, which is kind of what you're talking about here. Um, or to put it in film terms, it's a mixture jumping back and forth between like wide shots and extreme close-ups of things. Well, and it's kind of you... like, um, I, I kind of like would almost think of it as like a montage yeah. where it's like you're cutting, but the, what a comic book lets you do is because the page is like a whole work in and of itself, you know, you, you never lose. Whereas like in a montage, you can potentially like lose track of the original idea. Like if you keep keep cutting to random things, I mean, it depends like how you do it, but that's kind of the idea, but there's something about doing it inside of a page where it's like you have the page as the unit of the story. And then inside that you have all these other things, which, which sort of like guide you through it. Um, right. Yeah. It's a lot more seamless. Whereas in a movie that would be probably very, could get very jarring or seem kind of incongruent. But yeah, in a comic, you can seamlessly jump between a vista of like these, this kind of dilapidated looking shanty town on the outskirts of hell to like extreme close-ups of individual statues or objects, and then back out to like the wide shot to the splash page or um, the, the vista of like Hellboy walking along. Yeah. And I think he does that very effortlessly. Yeah, and it really keeps, like, the pacing of the story at, like, a very moody level, whereas in film, like, a lot of cuts can, can like, uh, kind of, like, speed up the story, maybe, and, like, try to and make it more difficult to, like, establish this sort of, like, slower, like, moody kind of feel. But in, in the comic, when you do it, you can still, like, kind of keep this, like, you know, slow, like, moody, you know, kind of pace while giving you all these like little asides like it yeah like i do think it's it's kind of like a style of visual storytelling that is a lot maybe not impossible to do in other places but i think works really well for like a comic book and we could talk more about the art but like, there's a lot of great designs and this is something that he's really good at is the designs on the creatures the designs on the landscapes um the monster designs you know the tentacle monsters so much that's just like coming at you and it's all so well designed it's just kind of fun to you, you could really just like page through it and just kind of look at all the stuff that's happening yeah he really has a love of like these sort of like insecty crustacean-y sort of monsters like he depicts the furies from myth as like you know these three women who are like the spirits of vengeance he draws them as like giant flies, kind of. They look like like a cross between like a fly or like a lobster, sort of. And then there'll, there'll just be like random asides where you know where there's just he just has like this wide panel of like these like sh uh, ghostly husks of people standing aside a lake in the city of hell, or like the, he has these close-ups of like a numbered um, anatomy model. Oh yeah, yeah. Just something that he is also used in like other stories like i don't think hellboy stories but I, there's another um story that i've read by Mignol, like a non-hellboy one where he also for some reason the the like numbered anatomy model is something that he's really enjoys drawing yeah i mean just as you like flip through it there's just so many like wonderful images with i love the way he draws 
he has this really like thin line kind of like style of drawing and i love the way he draws like mouths on demons maybe that's kind of weird but i, I just feel like the like the, the mouths on these creatures are always just like fascinating looking and like there's this yeah. great shot of like a cemetery where it just looks like a pile of gravestones right and it looks like there's literally just a mountain of gravestones and you, it makes really no sense as like a cemetery but they're in hell and the whole thing follows what we might call like myth logic right like satan's blood drowns out the fires of hell you know a, a city is just a pile of houses jumbled together uh, a cemetery is just a mountain of gravestones it's like a myth logic or a dream logic i also loved the part where he is walking along and there's all these little fish who are like help me help and then his guide explains to him that the fish are, I believe they're not like damn people, but just wasted lives. And then there's a giant smith who is supposed to be the guy who like built hell, I believe, or built the city of Pandemonium, who takes the fish and hammers them like on his anvil and then throws them into this giant pile of these like little red like metal men. And we are told that the this giant pile of little metal men is supposed to be the army that Hellboy would command if he were to take up his destiny as like one of the lords of hell and then like conquer the world. Yeah, and that's that great use of myth logic or dream logic, right? Wasted lives into fish, into a smith, into soldiers, into Hellboy's destiny. It's that like wheels within a wheels thing that I think is, is so fun to read. If you were to just read like like somehow if you were to just read excerpts of this, it would probably seem really random. But when you read the whole thing, it's like this whole tapestry and it's the story within a story, within a story, within a story. What would be your, do you have a final summation of Hellboy in Hell? What would be your, your blurb, your cover blurb? Cause I think we're basically both agreed that it's pretty great for a variety of reasons. Yeah. It's, it's, it's wondrous in so many uh, wonderful ways. Like I could, uh, rave about it all day it's like we said it's there is a overarching story through the 10 issues and that story ties into the overarching hellboy mythos but then within that there's all these like little asides and like other random characters that he encounters so you get kind of like the best of both worlds in that regards but to sum it up, I mean, in summation, I would say that Hellboy in Hell is basically the culmination of Mike Mignola's work as a cartoonist in the sense that it's like a purely distilled version of all of his interests. And Hellboy in Hell as a book is, is sort of like the culmination of his career. You won't as be in hell when you're reading Hellboy in Hell. So anyway, Matt, that yes. was some uh, mythic storytelling that we talked about. Do you have any sure, other? Sure was. Have any other? Have any recommendations for things mythic or not? Uh, yes, I would actually recommend a interesting piece of Arthurian myth slash storytelling. Um, the comic book Camelot Three Thousand, written by Mike Barr, and 
drawn by Brian Boland. So this is a comic book from 1982, which means it only came out a year after um, the movie Excalibur came out, interestingly, about all of the King Arthur characters being reincarnated in the year 3000, and there's like aliens and stuff. Now, you might be thinking, that sounds weird. It is kind of weird. It's actually pretty great. It's it's a take on the Arthur story uh, that's also straight science fiction. You know, they're in the future. They're all still wearing, like, their body armor um, and, like, their swords. But some of the characters get reincarnated into different things. So, for example, Tristan gets reincarnated as a woman. Um, one of the characters is, like, a samurai. It has Merlin in it, who has a bushy beard and, like, a wizard cloak. So he looks kind of like you'd expect. Arthur looks pretty much like you'd expect. So in some sense, it is this kind of weird science fiction take on Arthur. But it's also, I mean, it's pretty cool. It, it's a very comic booky kind of concept, right? But I think it does a good job of, of updating the storyline into a pure science fiction setting, but he still has Excalibur. I don't want to make it sound like I'm like slighting it because, I mean, it is pretty cool. It is, it is odd. Uh, it's very 80s in a lot of ways. You, you'll read it and you'll say, yes, this came out definitely in the 80s. So that's Camelot 3000, okay, written by Mike Barr, drawn by Brian Boland. I have never read Camelot 3000, but I know it's pretty well regarded, so I will have to um, check that out at one of these days. I'm going to recommend another Mignola book called The Amazing Screw-On Head and Other Curious Objects, which is a hardcover collection of sort of random one-offs non-Hellboy related stories that Mike Mignola has done over the years and it has a number of uh, stories in it that are really nice so it's it's basically just like a short story collection if you want to think of it as that but each one is really well done and I think I mentioned it before but weirdly enough there's a cameo there's a story called The Magician and the Snake where the story is credited to his seven-year-old daughter and it's about a magician and a snake who are best friends and weirdly enough the uh magician and the snake uh reappear in hellboy in hell the amazing true on head is a fantastic little read So, uh, Matt, if the people wanted to leave us a review, is that something that they should do, and how would they do that? Yeah, so that would be great. So you can leave a review on any podcatcher. Apple Podcast is still considered the big dog of the podcast world. If you want to leave an review on whatever app you use, that would be absolutely great. If any of the stuff we recommend sounds interesting, we try and take the legwork out of finding it. So you just go to the link that should be in the notes for the episode for the the text of the of the actual podcast episode and then it should just take you straight to the thing and you can it has all the stuff we talked about laid out there so if you thought it was interesting definitely leave a review um say whatever you want five stars would be great but we're all big boys so we can we can take whatever you want to say um you can find us on twitter so i'm at army of crime and Dustin is at Dustin44444. And our website is armyofcrime.com, where we have the whole thing laid out for you if you want to look through any of the stuff we talked about before. I think that pretty much covers it, doesn't it? I believe so. Any last words? Stay live out there, everyone. Stay live out there, everyone.
doop doop.